morning, everybody. How's it going? Uh, I'm here with my good friend, Josh Halbert, who's a FRS instructor, as well as a generally nice guy, I got to say. Um, and we were just um, talking about some topics that we were going to that we wanted to talk over today. We really didn't have anything particular, so I think we're going to free for all it. Um, but there was one kind of overarching thing that we were discussing the other day, and I was like, stop, Josh, because people probably want to hear this conversation. <clears throat> and we were discussing, you correct me if I'm wrong, Josh, we were discussing, it's almost the philosophy of what is an exercise and how is it defined in uh, people's heads? Is that, is that pretty much yeah. how we went over that? Yeah. Like, mm -hmm. yeah. So, so for example, when we, we say we're programming, people generally take a, a list of exercises that they predetermined, they have a, a predetermined notion as to what they're supposed to look like. They have a pre, uh, you know, a number of sets and then they go. And then when that um, exercise becomes stagnated, well, they should do this, but many people don't. But when that exercise becomes stagnated, they often look to another, the, the list of mouth noises that we use to represent exercises. And then they select new mouth noises or new exercises in order to fill um, into their thing. But the idea here is that you know, what is that exercise? And you were talking about um, the idea of it being pretty much a meme. Mm -hmm. How so? Yeah. Well, like, so um, you kind of think about it from a philosophical standpoint, uh, ideas are like organisms, mm -hmm. right? And ideas are constantly battling to survive, you know, whether you're looking from like religion to religion, political system to political system, where you get something into the idea of exercises. So, you know, and this is something that you've already touched on, uh, I think a couple weeks ago when you had that volume problem podcast mm -hmm. and the idea of like, most people, when they think of general strength conditioning, they're usually pulling from specific training of strength athletes, right? Yep. So the idea that when you look at a lot of, uh, in the fitness industry, what we call like maybe the big five, like push, pull, squat, hinge, and uh, carry that's just a filter of which was kind of just passed down through like the uh, process of mimetic selection or just the idea of evolving and surviving other ideas mm -hmm. and that's how we look at exercise but as uh, as we've kind of lectured on for many years like the body works different than that mm -hmm. right and what constrains an idea is basically how convenient it is to implement in modern life and that's uh, a different contrast than how biology actually works. Now, sometimes they align just through luck, but other times they clash. And that's, I think, why we have, you know, high injury rates, uh, lack of st uh, stagnant progress in exercise programs where we, people don't actually, they actually get worse. They don't get better. Mm -hmm. You know, the classic joke you use, though, you know, the best deadlifting program that you were on five years ago, you actually deadlift less than you did five years ago. So clearly it's not the best deadlifting program because it doesn't consider things like entropy and the um, non-linear format of how the human body works, the human ecosystem. Yeah, you were saying those, those five <clears throat> things. I think that's a Dan John thing for GPP, the push-pull, push-pull, carry, um, what are squat, 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 and hinge. And hinge. Yeah, which are really a description of the emergence of um, basic movements out of the anatomy that we're given, right? Like out of the anatomy that we're given, if we go backwards and we say, well, clearly our, our goal wasn't to exercise, nor was exercise a part 
of uh, let's say hunter-gatherer lifestyle 300,000 years ago, mm. uh, which by the way, new studies show it 300,000 years. We've always been saying that human form exists in the way that it exists for one to 200,000, but I don't know if you're aware that oh. now pushing that back by another 100,000 years. So all the more reason to discuss it because it's codified, so to speak, in what we are for yeah. 300,000 years and, and the environmental pressures that we were entailing in order to forge the genome are highly um, irrelevant at the moment, which means we have this, this stagnation. But if you take the anatomy that we, that we were given um, and you look at the emergences that come from the anatomy, first off, why are the emergences there? There has to be a one uh, ultimate reason as to why we see these types of movements in Homo sapiens over time. So there has to be like a, a end goal as to why these movements are created. So we've always put that back to the ability to acquire things. And we've mm -hmm. said this a million times that at the very outset of all of this, um, you're given a brain for the purpose of creating complex and adaptable movements. And those complex and adaptable movements are being undertaken for the purpose of acquiring things in our external environment. So if you take our anatomy as it's given to us and you allow those movements to emerge, what you're giving is a, is a, is a five uh, word description um, to generalize to a large extent how it is that we move from point A to point B in order to acquire things. So you can categorize them and you can say there's squat and there's pull and there's push and there's that. And that, that's a great overall categorization. Um, but of course, obviously, you see that in a normal hunter-gatherer life or a normal Homo sapiens life right now, the, pu the pushing is not a one thing. No. You don't the push and you don't the pull and you don't the carry. Um, you do a combination of these things at random, depending on the task that's presented to you. So yeah, I have a hard time when people talk about uh, primal movements or compound movements that must be done in order to maintain the person um, for the simple reason that those things were not done. I mean, never in, in a historical context was it a good idea to lift a weight in a particular way, like a rock, <clears throat> and then put it down and then go for three by five in order to, you know, increase your whatever it is, your, your, your size of your pecs. That's not inherent in the system. Um, what's inherent as a system is acquiring. So I think what you're actually saying is <clears throat> that if we go back to the general premise of needing to acquire, then really exercise should be a reflection of improving the organism's ability to acquire, which is to say to move into the external environment with purpose. Yeah, you know, um, that reminds me of the uh, one of my favorite shows. Uh, there's a new season on, I don't know if you've seen, it's called Alone. No. Uh, but they basically take like survival experts and they put them in this crazy remote place and whoever can outlast the longs before tapping out wins money. Mm -hmm. But if you, they get like 10 items and they're basically, you know, hunting and gathering and surviving and mostly starving off the land. And if you look at their daily life, like if you just use that pattern, like, okay, look, there's a squat, there's a hinge, there's, there's something, they're, they're pulling a tree to them, you know, they're pushing dirt away to dig a hole, but you're only making those, like those hierarchical, you're just, you're kind of making this, um, these assumptions based off this, this filter that you arbitrarily made. It's like, yeah, they're doing those things, but they're doing them 
not in, in the context of one hour a day for overload. They just happen to be doing them to acquire things and to survive, mm -hmm. right? And the only, the only reason we made exercise is to not be fat because we don't have to do that anymore. You know, their entire day, it's, 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 it's pretty fascinating, but their entire day is just go get water. There's a two mile hike, you know, fight off a bear, maybe lay out like a fishing line in the river and collect berries. Right. So like that's, there's no exercise there. That that's just physical activity. The man, yeah, yeah. nobody gets like no hunter gatherer got up in the morning is like, you know, what? it's fucking nice outside. I'm going to go for a level two run for an hour. Like, I mean, that's, that that was not to say that they they never rested people always hear us say that and they're like well you're saying that you know hunter gatherers uh were working all the time and they moved all the time and, and no we're not saying that at all if anything they were probably very selective and very good at at giving themselves breaks because they were going by their rate of perceived exertion and they were actually good at monitoring their own systems as opposed to what we're doing now where you have a, a, a monitor on your wrist uh, telling you what you are and what you should be doing and what you shouldn't be doing. Right. But that goes back to the idea, which we're going to get into in a later, um, a little bit later, as the people don't really know themselves or they're not familiar with their meat wagons to the extent that we want them to be, which is something that we see um, in the training realm all the time. I mean, we pretty much uh, let's get back because I don't want to jump around, but you were talking about these push pulls and how, yeah, you can see them happening. But another thing I want to point out is that your body is very uh, tissue specific in that a pushing exercise cannot generically strengthen all of the tissues that are being used to create that particular pushing exercise at that particular angle. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Meaning if I'm pushing out this way, it's not going to stimulate and adapt the same tissues, whereas I, I'm pushing up this way or I'm pushing out that way. And I know that people generically <clears throat> have that concept in mind, which is why they pick um, multiple exercises in order that they believe they're covering all of the areas of their body. But the problem there is that when we say cover all areas of your body, <clears throat> there's one tissue specifically <clears throat> that pish people uh, program off of and that is the stuff they can see it's like yeah. external tissue is what i'm going for so in order to train the deltoids well there's three deltoids there's the anterior deltoid there's the middle deltoid and the posterior deltoid when in reality there's no such thing as a deltoid there's no such thing really as the anterior deltoid or the medial deltoid or the posterior deltoid not to the same extent in between one person and another i mean what we're describing there are collections of muscle fibers that are slightly encapsulated in thicker epimesial groove or epimesial um, surroundings. So of course we know we give them these names and we say there's the anterior delt, posterior delt, middle delt, and somehow there's anterior delt exercises versus middle versus posterior. Um, so it's almost like we're, we're, we're trying to find linear ways to train muscle categories that we've predetermined instead of looking at the linear ways we move into the environment and just stressing those zones of movement. Mm -hmm. Does yeah. that make sense? So, yeah. yeah, because for whatever reason, exercise has been boiled down to uh, linear movements that have uh, dedicated start and end points. 
Like you start here and you get here. And I think the reason why we start here and get here uh, is because the outcome measures that we're used to using um, <clears throat> are performance-based outcome measures, yes. which are usually given a number to denote success or failure. So did you get the rep as if the rep is the point of the exercise? And I, I assume that over time, that idea of getting the rep has strengthened the the idea that an exercise is an independently living thing that must be conquered, so to speak. Like this is the purpose for the exercise. It is to get that rep, as opposed to saying the purpose of the exercise is to use um, an external constraint in order to funnel um, stress or forces internally with the purpose of altering a very specific anatomical tissue as a result. Mm -hmm. Sometimes exercise, like sometimes like exercise is prescribed as if it's quote, like functional, mm. right? like a lot of times, like people, like you're trying to get stronger at the overhead press, but in reality, the only thing you ever do in life that's overhead is the overhead press, even mm -hmm. though that you're thinking that you're training for life. Right now I, I understand like the, the, the benefit in mentally conquering a goal, and, and all that stuff. And, and there's valid, there's validity to that. But if we separate that from just as far as like, I think we're always trying to think like what is optimal and how can we make the most intellectually honest training decisions when, when it comes to um, training somebody's biology, whether ourselves or our clients. And, um, you know, sometimes like there's that, you know, like we talk about the evolution of the fitness industry, right? Where things were machines for a while, then about the time I started to come into the fitness industry in the early 2000s, it was functional training, mm -hmm. right? It was like poo-poo, you know, isolation exercises. Mm -hmm. We have to have that functional training. Mm -hmm. And now I think it's kind of evolved more just through social media and stuff to, I think we've had a part in that as well, um, is changing the conversation to like, what, what, what are you training for and what is the specificity of it? So like isolation exercises are back in, you know, because you almost have more respect in a sense for the bodybuilder, because at least they have an intention, like they, they're trying to externally build more specific tissue in an area, but they're very specific in what they're trying to do. At least the good ones are. And that's a sport. And that's another yes. thing I have to point out. That's it. I mean, I talked to John Quint about this a lot. <clears throat> it's like, you know, strength, there, there's, there's strength sports. There's sports that are inherently designed in order to demonstrate strength. And then there's other sports that use strength in order to achieve other goals. But the default is that stronger is better. <laughs> Ergo, if I'm a tennis player, I'm going to get strong by looking at how strong people get strong, right? Mm. But <clears throat> the way strong people get strong is very specific to their sport, which is the sport of getting strong. And that gets us back to the the things that might have originally caused this, which is, I, I think it all comes down, it comes back to outcome measure, right? What is it that you're trying to achieve? And if we think of the, the historical perspective of strength, and we've talked about this at the um, internal strength model, if you bring it back to, uh, you know, Soviet Union, 1950, or the surrounding uh, area, that's really when the first time that strength was systematically monitored in order to produce a very a specific goal. 
And the goal was to win gold medals, um, which they did at a crazy rate to the extent that it wasn't even comparable, uh, at least with regards to strength sports. <clears throat> and I don't think that people realize that a lot of the exercises that you're, that you've inherited um, from wherever you learned exercises from, there's something to say that that, that person who invented them had just as much information to go by as you do. As a matter of fact, they had less. Mm. So in other words, they weren't bestowed with any particular information as to how to exercise. It was, it was made up. Like same thing with yoga, same thing with anything. I mean, clearly, you know, that you don't look like a pigeon when you're on the floor in a pigeon pose. I mean, there's nothing about it that makes you look like a pigeon. Um, Ergo, you can't use the appearance of pigeon or not pigeon to demonstrate whether or not you're doing it correctly, mm -hmm. uh, which means the, the whole definition of correctly was just something that was made up. It was just, you know, you should do it this way. Why? Because maybe the person who made it up felt more that way. But as we talk about, if you, you know, change your, your angle and you feel a little bit more in your own body, should that not be the thing that's propagating your decision-making process as to how to train yourself? Mm -hmm. uh, but getting back, yeah, so a lot of these exercises, <clears throat> they were actually taking the exercise that they were going to compete with, be it an Olympic lift or uh, maybe it was power lift or whatever it was, and then they broke that down into chunks um, in order to <clears throat> use those chunks to build up a better lift. So yeah. it was a matter of looking at the lift and saying, what is happening in that lift, breaking it down into smaller chunks of exercise and then training those chunks and to a large extent that's what we're using today uh, in order to train people uh, now of course people you know it, it, it's not like it doesn't work i'm not going to say it doesn't work however i will say that despite all of this new uh, information and all of these technologies it's not like we're getting a dramatic decrease in the amount of soft tissue injuries that we're seeing in sport uh, if anything, there's more. Um, but again, if the goal is to lift this much weight, then for sure, we know how to get there. But I don't know that that's the goal. So when someone walks into your off into your office, uh, we always say this is that when they walk in, that person has a particular amount of control of themselves. You can give it a percentage or you can give it a whatever. You can break it down to every single joint. Maybe they have 40% of their right hip and 60% of their left hip and you know 90% of their right shoulder, but only 10% of their left. And we're taking these unbalanced people who are pretty much weekend at Bernieing their life by, you know, you guys remember that movie Weekend at Bernie, where they're kind of just flopping through life in their meat wagon, but they don't really have good control over their over themselves and then we give these exercises which for the most part are balanced between one side and another but not forgetting that if you only own 30 percent of one hip and three percent of the other hip it doesn't matter what you do your squat's not going to be balanced um but maybe there's something to say that that's where you should start when the organism walks into your office and you see the emergences that that they've created over the course of their life, you have to start at that. If you look at that thing, that person, which I, I think most scientists would agree that a person is, is, it's an emergent quality, right? You, you start with, with a couple cells that then multiply into a morula, which is just a glob of cells. 
Um, and then from that glob of cells, it's the interaction between cells and the interaction between those cells and the external environment that are going to mold the emergent being ultimately, right? Mm -hmm. uh, we talked about this in ISM where I, I explained how joints were made. And I, was, I said that, you know, technically the only thing proteined for is the approximate area where joints should be in these, this glob of cells. And what ends up happening is there is a, uh, the system ends up sending fluid into those areas at higher densities until those areas compact. These are the pre-proteined areas of, of joint, where joint spaces are supposed to be created. So that compaction happens until such point as we get what's known as a cavitation or a, an opening of space in that, in that tissue. So now you have uh, this bucket of cells, this, this blob of cells with these predetermined areas that cavitate and create space. And then from there, the only real other thing that you're given are, are twitch reflexes, you know, flexion extensions as things develop. And then the movements that occur within the womb, those movements are what ultimately shape the joints that come out. You know, if you were able to go in and kind of pinch off an area, that, that area would not be developed because it doesn't get the movement information necessary in order to develop. So if you take it right back to there, and you go, okay, so now this person is born and then they have certain habits and they have to acquire things. So they start to learn how to crawl and learn how to walk. And, and you notice that not everyone crawls the same. And you also notice that people learn to walk somewhat differently as well. So again, these are just emergences. Even walking itself is not a thing that's, that's necessarily inherent to us. It's a thing that is learned with the anatomy that you have, right? Like so, if you like, there's, there's not, there's not, there's not, there's not much you can do with a bike other than ride the bike based on true. the way the bike is, right? True. So you're saying with the anatomy that we have, like we're pretty much attracted to, to being able to walk. Yeah, like, <clears throat> we. I, I give that the example there that if you took a bunch of babies and you put them on an island without without any trainers or any movement specialists, and you left them there for you know ten years you would not come back to a bunch of crawling, butt scooting babies. You would come back and you would find babies who have learned, now they're teenagers, but they've learned that the easiest way for me to get from point A to point B in order to acquire the thing I need would be to walk or to run eventually, right? <clears throat> but that's not inherent. It's not like a gene goes off that says, get up and go. It's not like we have proteins that explain the dynamics of gait we just have a goal and the goal is get over there. Technically, um, there's, there's two uh, variables that, there's only two variables that need be overcome in order for me to get over there. And those variables are proximity and gravity, right? Those are the only two things that matter in terms of our ability to acquire things. How far away is it? And how much energy do I have to spend in order to overcome the amount of gravity that's going to hinder me from getting from point A to point B. Mm. And that's it. And, and, and really, that's the reason for muscles. Like th the only reason that muscles exist <clears throat> is to overcome gravity. That's the, that's the purpose of the muscle, um, which was actually interesting because uh, as you know, we were at NASA last week and I, I couldn't believe how many times I ran into that idea that 
when we're trying to program for astronauts on the on the on the space station, it's like you have an idea and, and you think the idea is making sense, and then you go through, you go through, you go through, and then somebody goes, gravity, and you go, fuck. I don't want gravity. And you think that gravity is an easy thing to overcome, right? It's just what up, down, up. But when you're in space, there's no up, down, right? So it's it's actually a, a difficult thing to overcome. And if you consider the, the the amount of bone loss and the amount of muscle loss that they have when they leave Earth's gravitational pull, I mean, that makes so much sense, right? Because right. once you leave it and gravity is less, the need for muscle goes down. So of course you start losing muscle, but also the need for bone goes down. So you start leaching calcium, <clears throat> which is one of the reasons why, and I'll get to this in a different podcast, why the, the magic of, of working uh, with, with uh, space travel would be the preparation of getting there and how much tissue you're able to put on on the front end before you leave. I mean, that's really the, the ultimate goal. While you're up there, you're just doing whatever you can to maintain whatever you have mm. by imagining scenarios or rigging up scenarios by which you know gravity kind of exists but it really doesn't uh or it's really so low That's i don't really remember the reason we oh we were getting i think we were getting back to the idea that all of this which might seem to most people overboard um but that that really is where you start when you say how do you make that system better if you started at 1950 Soviet Union, the question was, how do I win more gold medals in strength sports? So there was a specific undertaking in order to determine that. And what we were, got from that was what we think of as exercise. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, but that's not exercise. That's exercising for strength sport. And what you were saying earlier, like if you look at any um, sport and then you look at the practice of that sport, not the cross training, but the practice of that sport, um, it's always like, let's take that sport and let's put it in chunks. That was the word you used, right? Yeah. So when you look at something like distance running, uh, whatever, run a mile, run a marathon, it's like do smaller portions of that at different intensities, you know, until you, whatever, whatever it is for your goal. It's a, maybe if it's a, if you're a one mile racer, it's doing, you know, hundreds, 200s and 400 meters. Um, mm -hmm. But we essentially took the tiny bits of sports, of uh, strength training and we use that as our cross training for other sports, right? So like you take a football team and you're gonna do a strength and conditioning program. You look in the strength and conditioning program and most football, whether from the high school to pro level, um, a lot of it is very similar volume training that happens in a strength sport, mm -hmm. right? So, um, and it's, it's I, I'm amazed how it's hard for people to make the leap because those same coaches that are taking their football players out on the field, they understand that, okay, cool. Like we're going to work on cone drills. We're going to work on like very specific um, parts and bits of the, of the larger picture that is a football game, mm -hmm. but they don't, they just kind of default into like, you know, those memes that we talked about earlier, you know, squat, bench, deadlift, get as strong as you can in those lifts. Yeah, it's, it's, I, yeah. I think it's because there's no other mouth noises readily available to explain what you want done. When we teach, we teach ways of, of bypassing this, these concepts and just getting to the, what is it you're trying to train? Like not, not generally, specifically, what is it like with this signal that you're sending, what's the result that you're trying to get, right? With that signal. Um, but if you only understand how to send the signals in a very specific way,
then that's the way that you that you learn to send the signals. So if you've only learned strength is associated with a strength sport, then that's what you'll do. And you brought something up there about, we talk about the volume problem, but the volume problem is really a matter of knowing what sport you're actually in as well. It's not that <clears throat> the volume that people are doing is not going to make you stronger in a bench press or in a power lift or an Olympic lift. We know that to happen. The problem is, is that that athlete has a billion other things to work on that is not the lift. And when you take someone's sport whose sport it is to get better at the lift or to get stronger at a lift they're combining their practice with their training and i think that's where people get confused in the difference between practice and training like if you look at an olympic weightlifter the actual lift itself is the practice component right that is not actually done all that often like i don't know if people think that you know if you're an olympic lifter you just sit there trying to PR your snatches uh, on a daily basis because you don't. Um, it, the best lifters don't hit those snatches for quite a long time. And when they do, you'll see them deload the bar um, in order to work through the speed problem of the lift, as opposed to the brute force problem of the lift, which is taken care of with, uh, with exercises based on that lift. Um, but that's, that's the, I think is a major thing is that practice and training are not the same thing and when you start bleeding them into each other, it becomes very dangerous uh, because as, a, as a, let's say as a jujitsu player, the amount of time you should spend practicing an Olympic lift, I can argue is, is zero. Like you have so many other things to practice. Um, and then if we take that example, again, when you're training, you are sending a, a tissue specific signal or a variety of tissue specific signals. So if you take a jujitsu player, what tissue specific signal do we want? Well, we want it so that when they take that rear naked choke, that their tissue at this particular angle is able to exert a force, let's say an adduction in this manner, which is not the same force that is practiced when I'm doing an overhead press, or if I'm doing a what, you know, name the exercise. Um, so then the question becomes, well, how often do you specifically train the stuff that you use when you're doing your sport? Right. And again, yeah. that requires you understanding what you need for the sport, as opposed to what you need to get strong. If, I mean, you can break it down. I think what happens is those five things we said at the beginning, everything just gets generalized backwards to these five things because mm -hmm. it's easier to assign exercise in these five things. And then what happens is those five things end up being your GPP. So we talk about general physical preparedness and it's like, well, those are the qualities that you should be pulling forward with your athletes in time. And I don't think those are the qualities that we need to pull forward in athletes in time. I think the qualities should be way more specific to exactly what it is that they need. You know, um, and just in, it made me thinking for the sake of being intellectually honest, you could, you could try to steel man the other side of that. So let's say like, okay, jujitsu player, um, they decide that they're going to get stronger. They need to get stronger at pressing, for example. So they're working on maximal strength, maybe bench pressing, whatever. Um, and maybe, maybe they're, it's not like you said before, they could get stronger. Yeah. You know what, if you're working on something like a maximal strength bench press, you are 
working on the nervous system's output as a whole, right? Because you are, it's, it's a, when you see strength, it's a behavior. So you're working on that. And maybe you will, you will get some incidental benefit from being able to squeeze harder. But I don't, but I'm, but I, I think what we made the case is, is like, A, is it optimal? And I don't think it is because it's not specific enough to actually working a maximum squeeze in something like a rear naked choke. And B, you're, you're also leaving behind other qualities and you're not getting to the deepest tissue. You're, you're just getting them to squeeze harder with the shitty tissues that they already may have, or actually even say the patternized tissues that they already have from their sport. And you're not addressing the deficits that they actually get from over-practicing their sport. So you're not getting, you're not fixing their, their weaknesses in, in that scenario. You are getting some actual neurological benefit because you're practicing that high output neurological um, endeavor, like maximal bench pressing. Um, and you may have some carryover, but it's not the optimal way because it's not specific enough. You know, that's, we can always go back to that. We, we rely on specific adaptation to impose demand. You know? I want to, I want to unpack that though, because there's a lot of stuff that you just said, like yeah. you're right. There is, and, and this is another problem with a lot of training is that, that we talked about this before that they, people ignore absolute strength training. Um, I, I, E, there is something to say, we need to get you better at harnessing all of your neurological drive and focusing it into a particular task, right? Mm -hmm. um, but there, that I just explained what the goal of that exercise is. So even then, so you're right, I'll take a jujitsu player and I'll say, okay, I need some way of gauging how much neurological energy that you can drum up through your lower body and I need some way of gauging how much neurological energy you can drum up from your upper body. And the reason I need those is not because, and let's say you use a deadlift for one and a bench press for another. In that case, I'm not claiming that the deadlift is functional for the sport or the bench press is functional for the sport, but the ability to output neurological force is functional for any sport, right? Mm -hmm. As well, it, gives me an outcome measure to know that what I'm doing is actually making a, a beneficial change to their ability to output that much energy. So let's not get confused into saying that we don't use some of these mouth noises for lifts. Um, we do. But where I think it changes is in that particular case, because I don't care about the exercise per se, I care about your discharge. We'll often go to someone, we'll go, okay, look, we need something for your lower body. We need something for your upper body. So I can know how to, how to arrange percentages for all of your other training. I mean, if you don't know what your upper limits of, of strength are, then you have no idea how to funnel it backwards and change the percentages and, and mm -hmm. in order to program, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's what programming is. One of the problems is nobody programs. And I think a lot of the reason why nobody programs is not, be, it's not their fault. It's because I mean, programming, the, the importance of programming, you see that when you're working at the upper echelon of athletics, right? When you have a guy who's like, you know, 500 pound bench and you need 505, that difference is enormous in terms of how you're going to get there. But if you have an untrained person and you go, you know, I just, you, you bench 135, I want you to bench 145. If they're untrained, you can do anything. Like, Untrained people are untrained, which means whatever you do, you're going to create a stimulus. Most of that stimulus is going to be neurological anyway, which is why to a certain extent, everything works. Everything works 
um, for people unless they're trying to be at the upper echelon of that thing, in which case that's why strength science is actually needed because at one point, everything doesn't work anymore and then only specific things work to, to push you um, to that level. Exactly. Um, mm -hmm. Where were we going with this? You were, you were talking about the idea of, of linchpinning. Linchpinning, yeah. So <clears throat> with regards to absolutely, absolutely, we're going to say, so I need that exercise. So th they might say, well, you know, let's do a, a bar deadlift. I go, why do you do a bar deadlift? Then you go, well, I read somewhere that bar deadlifts are the, the, um, the best type of deadlift and they, you know, for whatever reason it's, and you have to use the bar, you can't use trap bar. And I would say, are you trying to be a professional deadlifter? No. Then what the hell difference is it? What you use just, which one do you like better? Which one do you feel more comfortable doing? Which one is less dangerous for you? Because I'm taking, you know, we're taking athletes in season and we're linchpinning their amount of strength. Right. And people go, oh, my God, that's dangerous. You can't take a, a MBL, a, a Major League Baseball player and do any absolute strength training because, oh, my God, they have to play and you're going to hurt them. Well, you're going to hurt them more if you give them things that are unnecessarily difficult as opposed to just what you need, which is how much force can your lower body put out? So I would take a, a trap bar deadlift because that's what the person likes to do. And you let them do it. Now, how often do you need to do that is another question that we run into. So how often do you need to train? your absolute strength when your goal isn't necessarily the addition of more absolute strength. It's the, um, you know, it's training of the body. You only have to do it once in a while just to make sure that you're at that level. And to explain further what you said with linchpinning, the idea here is if you can push up your absolute ability for your neurology to discharge, then you can then turn the focus of that discharge back into the body in order to acquire um, capacities that you need to acquire. Mm -hmm. That brings us back to the original point here, which is the outcome measure. If, if your outcome measures are external, then when someone comes in, you say, lift this weight, and then they can or they can't, and then you make decisions about what they can or cannot do. But that's an external way of understanding that, that organism, because I don't know that you, have you determined how much force they're used to outputting, right? Going back to the weekend at Bernie's person, if someone walks in and they have real, they don't have a lot of control over their body. When you ask them to do very specific things, like take an overweight person with a gut, you know, they might be a smoker with low back pain and you say, stand up and try to segment that L5S1. So, you know, just really move at L5S1. They get up and they don't know where they are. Like everything just starts moving simultaneously. And you take that person <clears throat> who obviously isn't comfortable in their own body and they haven't, ex they haven't experienced their body. And then you say, lift this item and they can't do it. And you say it's, well, that's a strength problem. Is, is it a strength problem or is it a lack of discharge problem? Or is it a, they don't, they've never really put that much effort into something before, or is that a, they don't know how to discharge the effort into that particular area of their body because they're unpracticed. Um, so I think there's a lot to say that when someone walks into your office, the assumption that everyone is working at the same level playing field and that you can start to draw these exercises from the ether and just give them to them. Well, that's the problem because the, it, it bypasses the point, which is that person wants to get better at that person, right? 
Yeah. It's the trainer who wants them to get better at these outcome measures. Like if you take someone conceivably who doesn't know anything about training, you go, you come, you, we got to get you to squat two plates. Well, I, I didn't really want to squat two plates. Like, why do I want to squat two plates? I think trainers do that as well too, is that they, they impose their own goals on people. Yeah. That's I, a special thing. Yeah. Right. I find when you stop and actually ask them, the number one answer I get from, you know, general people say 40 years old, 50 years, people who are old enough to know <laughs> what their actual goals are. When you're 20 years old, your goal is to be the strongest person in the gym. You don't care the consequences. In, and then you ask that person at 50 and they go, holy shit, was I dumb? Like how, how many times have you heard that? All the time. Man, I shouldn't have done that. But so if you take someone who's, you know, 40-ish has got past that, I want to be, the, and you go, well, what is your goal? The goal is I just want to play with my kids. I want to get up in the morning and not feel like I'm 150 years old. I, I, I don't necessarily have the goal of doing a, a muscle up as, as much as I have the goal of my, my shoulders is aching me and I want that to go away. So yeah, it's a mismatch between outcome measures um, and, and, and what we're selecting. And the selection process is like, like you said, based on this preconceived notion of what exercises are that were simply handed down to us from, from. Yeah. You know, you said something too about like programming, I think, I think um, you said a couple of things I wanted to touch on. One was uh, people aren't asking the right questions, I think, when it comes to what the person needs. So when you talk about um, coaches, like things trickle down to the, to the athlete, to the student from the coach, you know, how, how many times have we, you know, you and I have been into a strength and conditioning uh, room, whether it's a college or a pro team or somewhere around the world, and the staff is really into Olympic lifting. Mm -hmm. right like that's that's what they do so naturally the athletes are doing olympic lifting and it's they're not even olympic lifting athletes though like they're just football players and then you have to like you know i'm all again i always try to like steel man both sides of it so i understand and it's like okay like you have your wide receivers right and they're doing cleans and you're like why are they doing cleans it's like i'll tell you why they're doing cleans because you're moving uh, a submaximal weight explosively it, there's the eccentric catch it's an athletic movement in a particular thing and it looks athletic. So you, and you're dealing with athletes and you want them to get stronger, but then you also have like, what's the risk of doing that? Right. If you're a receiver, like you make your money with your hands. So like, why are you going to try and take, even if, even if it's a hand clean, why are you going to catch a bar in this position mm -hmm. and risk spraining your wrist or breaking your wrist with, with or without the prerequisites you may, may or may not have to try to get something that you can get without that cost so you, you you have to constantly think like the risk reward analysis in addition to the tissue specific demands that you need you were gonna yeah, say because you're, yeah. you're saying that that particular person is using the lift not for the lift's sake but for the the attributes but for the attributes which in this case again if it's not specific to what they're doing then the attribute has to be neurological discharge like that's got to be the reason why you're doing that exercise, right? Like, well, even if you, even if you're looking for speed strength or explosive strength, um, you're probably getting that out on the field. Like okay, when you're doing amazing. like cutting and sprinting and the plyos and all, you know, the show and dance that is football training, you're probably getting a lot of that out there. Mm -hmm. Like if you're in the gym, you should be like, I'm the multivitamin for the movement stuff that you don't get. Like, what aren't you getting from your sport? Well, you're not getting a lot of time in end range hip rotation that you don't have much of your spine is patterned because you've been doing the same thing for 20 plus years. You've been in car accidents 
essentially for, you know, every game you're in. Um, so like you should be filling the gaps into there. Like, I think, I think if people like looked at the attributes they got in their sports specific practice and then saw what they didn't get in their sports specific practice and then use their training to fill that, they'd be in a much better place. Um, is that programming? I also think that it's, it's, it's not that maybe insulting is a strong word, <clears throat> but it's insulting to think that like, we've seen this before a, a person who has a history in Olympic lifting gets the head job at a particular team. And then all of a sudden that team is using Olympic lifting as a tool, which is to draw back from the difficulty of Olympic lifting. Mm. I think a, I love Olympic lifting, right? I think it's amazing. I think it's an incredible feat. I've worked with Olympic lifters. It's brilliant. That's the exact reason why I don't Olympic lift because that, that requires, that, that's not my thing. Like that, that's not, so yeah, you can get generically powerful by lifting something up over your head, but thinking that that generic, the only part of, okay, here's a good point, way to put it. The only part of that, which translates into your sport would be discharge of force. That's it. That's it. So like, like, unless you're, unless you're lifting people off the ground and throwing them in the air, like specific to the tissues doing this is, is not going to help you. When I say not going to help you, let's, you, what I mean is it's not, uh -huh. it's not a one-to-one -one ratio, right? It's uh -huh. not even close. The idea that if I get strong here, I'm going to be strong here, which is the specificity principle, which by the way, is the most powerful principle that governs training uh, as we know it. It's the idea that if you're, if you're strong, you're strong in the way that you're strong. Um, <clears throat> but those lifts, what, what are you actually, you're going to get the ability to discharge force, which is what we're saying, which is why we're saying that we're not omitting all of these things, but we're not adding to the volume problem by overtraining these things with no end in mind right? With no, with no purpose. And you said, you said it, you nailed it. Like athletes have to do a lot of things. If I'm dealing with an MMA athlete, there's a lot of hours that need to be spent on the mats in stand up, in takedowns, in, you know, guard passing and defense and striking and jabbing and this and that. I would rather uh, get to the essence of what your training is for separate training from practice and then reallot the time back into practice. I've never dealt with a wrestler who told me the reason they didn't win that match is because they, they needed 20 more pounds on their deadlift. Mm -hmm. That's, that's insulting the other wrestler. Right. And, yeah. and, and the same thing is <clears throat> to say that you see this in sport where whatever competition you go to, there's usually men or women who are really good at the sport who are jacked jacked and then there's people who are equally good at the sport who are not jacked right yeah. um, but who are equally as strong like i, I use the example on um, mma con commentating is like <clears throat> there'll be a guy there and he's like oh my god this guy he's freakishly strong freakishly strong freakish power in his hands and look at him, he's built like a brick shithouse, like he's just fucking huge. And then you get a person who, you know, it's just regular muscularity, nothing. And they go, oh my God, that person is freakishly strong. You've done jujitsu too. You know these people. It's like you roll with someone who's just jackamified, right? Huge. And mm -hmm. they're like, well, that person felt strong. And then you, you wrestle someone who's 20 pounds lighter uh, and is built like a bag of milk. 
and you go, holy shit, that person was strong. Mm. And then you start to think to yourself, maybe strength isn't just a thing, right? Maybe there's a, maybe, maybe technique is really the execution of specific strength. Ergo technique should win the day with regards to allotting time in order to do things. So I, I find it, I, 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 and you also brought up another good point is that, yeah, there's practice and training, but also remember that in the midst of practice, the tissues are undergoing stresses and forces. Yeah. It's training. And we talked about this on the last uh, podcast with uh, Chivers and Quint in that, you know, there's, there's three intensity levels at which you can work, right? There's stimulating, there's uh, uh, retraining and then detraining. And one of them is used to acquire things. One of them is used to maintain. And the other thing is used to maximize resources, right? But where do people spend all their time? Well, the sports are played in the middle, right? The sports are played in that retraining zone. And if you go into the gym and watch a lot of people train, most of the training is also in the retraining zone. Mm-hmm. And the thing about being in the retraining zone is, is that you're not sending any signal to your body to change, which is why the retraining zone is known as the maintenance zone. So if you're maintaining, you know, you only need, you know, if you want to maintain your bench, whatever it's at, you only need to hit that bench once a month, maybe, and, and to, to, to make sure it's there. And as long as you're training, it will be there, right? If you're training properly, you'll PR on that each time you try it, but it will be there. Mm-hmm. But the problem is, is that everyone's volume of training sits right in the middle. And be, that's because people are too scared to go up high because that's dangerous. And they're too scared to go low because that's a waste of time. Yeah. They live in the middle. They live in the middle. But the problem yeah. is, is that practice and play occurs in the middle. So this idea of volume and volume is a difficult question. I understand that research wise, sometimes it's hard to tease out what we mean by volume. But what we mean is repetitive volume. Repetitive volume for, for, for no benefit other than maintaining yourself. But if you understood that maintaining yourself is not a difficult task, you can cut the volume and maintain everything you have and then push people's training up or down so that they, they take use of the stimulating and, um, and, and, and detraining uh, loads so that you don't add to that problem. Well, you know, one of the um, things I always... I, I... We've, we've lectured on and um, is uh, like, just don't waste training time. You know, that's such a valuable thing. Like training time is, is everything, you know? Uh, and if you think about what we were saying earlier about like the athletes, right. And you're taking like an MMA athlete and we go into this on how to conceptualize it in, in the uh, internal strength model, but like how much, if, if, if you could, if you could quantify recovery and adaptation as a currency, how much currency, oops, looks like my camera died. One second. I'm going to go to the other side. Right now I'm talking to myself. Oh, now I'm talking to the. the Here we go. Now you're going to get the, my other camera. I haven't seen that in a long time, that uh, all of the different colors. <laughs> yeah, that was great. They would, they would default to that. Yeah. Um, so if you could quantify recovery and if you could quantify adaptation as a currency, how much of that do you get in a week? And how much of that are you spending on all the stuff? So you're wrestling in the morning, you're doing, you know, jujitsu and you're doing striking in, at lunch, you're doing kin stretch with, with me. And then you're doing, you know, 
whatever, uh, aerobic two work or zone two work or something like that. And you have a, a whole, for an MMA athlete, you have a whole week that's, I don't know, 12 plus training sessions. Uh, and it's really hard to um, titrate the intensity in something like a wrestling practice or jujitsu, or we're gonna go light, but people don't always end up going light. So you, you take this at like the whole picture and how much of that can you really spend on? Like how much, how much do you have left over trying to, trying to change a quality, a tissue quality that the person has? So when you're, when you're programming for somebody or you have a human being come in and you're like, okay, I'm, I'm responsible for helping you, you know, uh, reach your goals. And there are also sport athletes. So you're not the only source of exercise or physical activity that they have. You have to look at the whole picture and you may have to take some things out so that you can actually adapt. And you look in those, those strength and conditioning um, rooms that we've been in. And it's like, yeah, it's like they're doing hang cleans for 15 minutes, but before they also did like, you know, 15 minutes of a dynamic warm up. They got their 15 minutes of everything's in 15 minutes because they only have an hour. They have 15 minutes of hard strength work and then 15 minutes of accessory, and then they go out on the field, right? And so now they've done 15 plus training hours a week, plus being a college student, you yep. know, and how much are they really adapting? Or they, I think you knew, I, we, we probably talked about this on, on a previous podcast, but I think athletes at that level are so good in spite of the training that they have. I think that's the reason why they're the athletes. I think that for the most part, um, Athletes are just the ones who put up with the bullshit the best, like whose body is put. I, <clears throat> there's got to be some Michael Jordan type basketball players that we lose in grade 10, grade 11 to unnecessary injuries, uh, largely caused by this lack of understanding, as you're saying, as to how many resources we have available. And you only have a certain, a finite amount of resources in order to make changes. And I think people get greedy um, and they, oh, hold on one second. I gotta take this one second. Let's pause that. Sorry about that. I had to go and deal with something quickly. So we were talking about, um, about resources and how there's a finite number of resources with which to train the athlete and that the athletes are utilizing these resources because of this preconceived notion as to, like we said, what training is. And you said something actually earlier about the training times and you explained the training times of an MMA athlete being several training uh, hours of the day and it's spread out. But I think more important to discuss that I, I jotted down is that the idea of training time is also something that is created by the industry for the industry, right? Like mm -hmm. it's very difficult for a trainer to say, uh, you need to train 13 or 14 times a day at certain, you know, and you don't have to all pack it into one hour because clearly that's the only hour they have to train you. Right. So right. it's the same with physiotherapy, physical therapy. It's like, if you have an ACL rupture and you're at you, your own, the rehab doesn't occur three times a week at your physical therapist's office. Your, your rehab is to occur, you know, from the minute you wake up until the minute you go to sleep, but that's not what the, the structure of training is. So people think, for example, that they have to get that 15 minute warm up, then this, then this, then this, and it all has to be packed into that one session. Uh, but again, if you think about it and you consider exercise not to be a real thing, uh, but just to be a, a compensatory thing in order for us to deal with the fact that we don't live the way we're supposed to live. Uh, 
if you go back to how forces were um, utilized in the body throughout the course of a day, it was spread out through the course of a day, right? Never in the history of, of, of human evolution were we packing all force inputs into the 45 minute to an hour time that you have allotted to go to the gym, which is another problem is because, you know, if we think that all of these things have to get achieved at the same time, then it becomes everything gets piled into your training hour. And mm -hmm. then that, you know, that exceeds your load, uh, your ability to absorb load. And then all of a sudden you have, you, you have explosion of tissue. It also exceeds your ability to, to put in enough intensity to make a change. But there's, a, then there's another good question it's because, you know, intensity is the currency of, of the, the endocrine system, right? It's, it's mm -hmm. intensity that matters. So, yeah, I think that there's, uh, John Quint, one of the art instructors, he always says, you know, don't get greedy. Like when you're in the gym, don't be greedy. In other words, if you stop someone, you go, hey, what is it that you're training for right now? Like, well, I'm training for strength and I'm training for balance and I want to get powerful and I want to get fast and I also want to look good and I want to do it's like, wow, that's a lot of that's a lot of stuff. Like what exactly are you try are you using your finite resources at this moment to acquire? Because all of those things, you know, if you push those down to maintenance, you can maintain all of those things. But the thing you're driving for, there's only one or two things you can drive for because that's where your intensities go. Um, and if you look at someone's, you know, workout, you can almost see like out of all of this, if your goal was, you know, I needed more, you know, chest tissue, right? You go to a bodybuilder and you go, okay, you're trying to build your chest. Wh which one of these 17 exercises, like uh, which one, what was the rep that sent the signal that I need more chest? And they can usually point to one of the exercises and you go, that's the one I blew my load on. Like I went full out onto that one. And then the question is, well, why did you do 17 more exercises? Like that signal was sent. Your body knows that it needs more. Brilliant. Now, everything else that you added on is volume. Right. right? And it's, it's unnecessary volume because now you're just talking about breaking down tissue. And I don't know why the idea of tissue breakdown became the goal of training because it's not. Um, the goal of training is building tissue. Uh, but this idea that if I beat the crap out of my tissues uh, as much as I can, that that's the, the most efficient way to make them better in the long run. Um, but it's also one of the more efficient ways to break them down in the long run as well. You know what I'm saying? Like, And, and the other thing is that you can training that way you can get better like it's not that you can't get better but you get better to a point you can only get better to a point and then the negative effects of all of that volume on you starts to take into it starts to, to factor in and then you either get injured or you get a nagging injury that you can't deal with and you see that these people fluctuate on their programs and and they don't really own up to why the fluctuations are occurring and it's like you're fluctuating because you're doing it like yeah. you're pushing your load bearing capacity to the utmost extreme and then you're exceeding it and you're right. drawing back down and you're going, well, you know what? I didn't drink enough water or I should have stretched more or, and it's usually the, 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 the coach that's doing this, right? That hundred percent, if, if someone gets injured when they're getting trained, however, the injury occurred, it's likely their fault, right? No matter yeah. what happens, the coach is going to be like, well, did you go for that massage? Have you been eating your oatmeal? Uh, you know, did you drink enough water? Do you have enough electrolytes? As opposed to saying, holy shit, I just, I did too much. I, I ran through this person, 
Yeah. And that that is inherently the problem. You're looking, I mean, that's kind of like on the greater concept of like the, the minimum effective dose. Absolutely. And that's, I was going to get to that. The minimum effective dose is what we're supposed to be trying to, to find. Again, it's difficult to find when you're dealing with gen pop people because oh yeah, the, the effective dose is anything. Like anything is the effective dose in someone who's untrained. Which, Which is why uh, Westside, yeah. you know, for example, like they, I mean, they work with the strongest people in the world. And, you know, when you, when you start working with people that are so advanced, that's where you, that's the filter for what you actually find out what works. And even like, and that's the path you would even want to put a beginner on. Maybe not that the intensity, not, but you, your idea is that you're, you're trying to cut through the, the, the newbie gains and really set up long-term athletic development, whatever you want to call it, but you, you want to set that foundation and push them into that funnel because that's the funnel that, that, that is the path that is proven to work because it works on the best in the world. And what is the foundation? That's what your GPP is. Like when you say to build a foundation, yeah. like let's talk about that. When, when someone comes in and you go, I want to build a foundation. To me, it only means one thing. You want to make that person work as they were intended to work. Like right. the GPP should be, you know, achieve some kind of basic functionality using the bits that you have and then make sure those bits work in time. And the bits that are trainable, they start with the articulations who house the space that, which allows for external movement to even be created. So, I mean, mm -hmm. what are we trying to build? When someone comes into the, you know, through the door, the first thing we should do is make the person familiar with themselves. Yes. Then isolate which joints, which are the basic functional movers of the body, are not functioning in the way that we know that they have to function? Yep. And that's not even a hard thing, like a shoulder. What is the purpose of a shoulder? Well, with any anatomical knowledge, you know that it's a ball in a socket and that it moves like this, right? In With rotational ability. So the one bone has to move relative to this bone. So the first thing that you should know is, does this bone move relative to this bone? Because the amount of relative motion determines the amount of potential you have to train that joint. Yep. Right? So that's, I mean, we, we're, we've said it for years now, but when we say cars, we're not just saying start doing cars because they're good for you. Start doing cars so you can see that joint doing what that joint is supposed to be doing. And if that can't, joint can't do it, then the first goal would be to set up a training program in order to make the joints do what the joints are supposed to do, right? Once that occurs, then you can then take those joints and then you can funnel that energy into whatever movements that you want to create. But the fundamental prerequisite has to be the ability for one bone to move relative to the other bone. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, not enough is given to that. If you give a generic, give me a generic person who's just like, I just want to be healthy and functional and I just want to move around. And I, well, well, that's pretty much where the training is going to stop. Like you're going to start there and that's where you're going to be. Of course, to give people practical ideas, we would say that we need some kind of absolute strength um, measure 
right? In order to know what, what, what we're doing and in order to get these neurological discharges in order to funnel back into the body. Maybe we didn't talk enough about that. But even to even to start that you need to train, you may need to train them to be ready to even get an absolute strain measure. Uh, there you go. There's another, that's another thing too, is like, you, again, you have to meet, you have to meet the person where they're at. So you may even understand that like, you know, intensity is, is going to be our, our driver for change, but this person needs to learn the art of intensity, right? And they may not even have the actual um, architecture in their tissues to handle intensity. So we have to, we may have to take them through a prep phase, whatever that is, four weeks, seven weeks, 10 weeks, whatever, depends on the person. So that eventually we can get to the point where we can actually have some safety test. We can safely test for maximal efforts. That's also outside of those newbie gains mm -hmm. that people get, you know? <clears throat> This reminds me of the idea of irradiation, which people will often talk about whether or not it's a factor in actual literature, which it doesn't really matter. The idea of irradiation is the idea that if you try to harness strength with your hand, you're going to harness the most amount of strength, not only if you contract with your hand, but if you contract your hand, plus all of the other muscles around your hand in order to squeeze more force through your hand. So the ability to generate and discharge force through the body is a skill. Yep. Um, and we see that, like you said, at Westside, when we're dealing with Westside lifters, we're doing a pails and rails. You know, you're just going from here and you're saying, okay, push back against me. Those guys are so used to discharging force that you have to brace yourself because when they do their pails, they, they, it looks like their head is going to explode because they have this gauge in their body where this is zero and this is 150% intensity because they've been there. Yep. But take a normal, a normal, a person who's untrained, their zero is here, but their idea of intensity is only here, right? That means that there is a, a potential, an inner potential to teach that client how to drive more energy and funnel it into a very specific thing, which is what we're talking about. Pushing mm -hmm. that upper level of intensity so that you can funnel it back uh, into the internal environment. But that I think is like when, when I, when we take clients, that's one of the training goals. So we start cars and then we start playing with the amount of internal resistance you can put on yourself. And then with that, it, people often, they'll be like, well, what's the, how do you know? Like when I say do cars and I want you to move at a 50% intensity, how do you know what that is as the trainer? The, the answer is you don't. It's not even your business to know what that is. That's yep. them learning what that is, right? You, in order for them to know what their 50 and what their 100 is, you have to practice their 50 and their 100. Yep. That doesn't mean that the 100 can't go up. It just means that that's where it is right now. But that person has to be acutely aware of where they are. And then the idea there is that you try to build internal intensity up to the max. And that's why we take cars at low intensities. And then we get them doing it at crazy high intensities with no external load. Yes. Just so they can prepare their own internal environment to deal with the output of intensity prior to stacking on external exercises or external weights, which make everything that much more complicated. I agree. I, you know, and I think that even brings us to something we were going to touch, we wanted to touch on before, which was um, the idea of cross training. Mm -hmm. too right because i think you know kind of step back for a minute there's one of the things i remember that blew my mind when i when i first took the the frc many years ago was the idea that you brought up the scientific analogy problem 
And the idea that, you know, as a quick summary is like, people in, in any industry come up with analogies to explain problems or things to people outside the industry, right? But the issue is that you start to believe those analogies and you start to use them between other professionals. And, and so in this case, like, um, you know, I think if people inherently see that they are they're like, oh, you know what, my sport or my, um, my job has me drooped down like this. So I must do a lot of stuff that's in the opposite. Right. And it, you know, and that's a superficial way. I mean, there's nothing, there's not, uh, I'm not even saying that's necessarily wrong, but when you start to think that like, you have to take like, like nobody would ever, I think, I hope people wouldn't think that in order for you to improve your basketball, you should play tennis yeah. right? because it's cross training, right? You're using your body in different directions. I, you know, I think we should strive to be more specific with that. And the idea of cross training really should be what we call internal training. Like your internal training should fill in the gaps that your main activity doesn't give you. Mm -hmm. Right. And, you know, to use an analogy, it's like you wouldn't take um, a car with poor alignment and then just drive it differently, hoping that the alignment would fix itself. And the same thing with your body is like you wouldn't take um, joints. Like, like I wouldn't, I, I didn't start trail running because I knew it would help my lateral ankle tissue. I actually prepared my lateral ankle tissue so I could go start trail running. Mm -hmm. You know, you know what I'm saying? So when people think, well, you know, I'm a, and it's good to be a multi-sport athlete because you are going to expose yourself to different things, but that's not, that's not a, a true substitute for working on the deficiencies you have in your tissues that aren't able to meet the demands that are required of your activity. Isn't that just a, again, a practice versus training misunderstanding. Like, mm -hmm. for example, we talked about this in the last podcast as well. But if you're going to train, if you, if you want an increased vertical jump, what most people do is they devise an elaborate program based on vertical jumping, whereby you jump in different ways in order to improve your jump as opposed to saying, well, the jump is a display of strength and strength is the culmination of a variety of factors that are being harnessed together in order to overcome a particular movement um, challenge, like the jump. <clears throat> so when you do the jump, you're amalgamating your joint space and your connective tissue architecture and the load bearing capacity of your connective tissue and your muscles ability to generate specific speeds, which is dependent upon the percentages of slow twitch versus fast twitch versus anything in between. Um, so those are the factors. Those are the physical biological factors that when put together by nervous system control produce the jump. Ergo, are we practicing jumping to get better at jumping or should we not be training the biological elements that accumulate in the jump? Mm. And, you know, an example is you give me a, a basketball player who has a, a, you know, a particular vertical and you go, I want more vert. So they automatically take the ankle they have and they go, okay, let's get more vert. Let's do uh, plyos. Let's do the jumps faster. Let's do the jumps with weight on. Let's do the jumps without weight on. Let's do the jump, you know, and the, the fact of the matter is, is that ankle is still that ankle. Like the ankle is the ankle is the ankle, unless you change the ankle. Right. Yes. And jumping is such a, it's such a, you know, 
right there, that body is going to decide how to make the jump. That's another thing. The dynamic um, systems theory concept is necessary here. The idea that every time you do a movement, your body will in fact find a different way to do that movement. And it's not inherent. So, you know, if you jump a particular way that one time and then you go back for another jump, just the fact that you didn't take off from the same spot, that your legs were separated by a different amount, that your foot was at this angle versus this angle versus this angle, that while you were jumping, a loud noise went off in the background, all of these variables are going to change the inherent way that the jump is produced, which is to say that if you just keep practice jumping, you're not, you're not going to overload tissue to make change. You're just going to bypass tissue in order to avoid using energy. Like you're more efficient. Yeah. Your body's job is not adaptation. Your body's job is to conserve energy. Like that's, well, ultimately it's to produce heat by way of entropy. Um, but generally your body is trying to conserve energy. So if you jump, it's not going to say, you know what, when you jumped there, this part of your soleus was lacking strength. So let's just take that part of the jump and start building more soleus. Your body will never do that. Because once the jump is done, the body's like, okay, can I rest again? Can I rest again? Awesome. I'm resting. Then it goes to jump again. And then next time it jumps, it might not even use that part of the soleus. Why would you use shitty quality stuff? It'll, it'll bypass that and it'll go elsewhere. So in time, you're not producing progressive adaptation in, in anything other than the accumulation of this practice that is the jump. But if you really want to change the jump, <clears throat> then change the thing that your body's using to produce the jump. So the example with that basketball player, give them another 10 degrees of dorsiflexion. Okay, now that opens up another can of worms because don't give it to them by increasing flexibility because flexibility in and of itself is not going to produce any more load power or force in order to produce that jump, right? You have to increase that ankle degree by 10 degrees, but then you have to then retrospectively fill in that new 10 degrees with strength and neurological control so that it's a usable 10 degrees. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was hearing somebody the other day on a podcast was talking about the most efficient ways to stretch and to become flexible, right? So you're like, oh, I think 30 seconds was the way. I don't remember what, where, where I was hearing it, but, <clears throat> and then they proceeded to give a whole bunch of research on, you know, if you take a bunch of dancers and you stretch them in this way, they get more range of motion, ergo, everyone should stretch for 30 seconds at a time. But again, so are you saying that just the range of motion is, is all you needed? Or are you saying that the range of motion should be usable? So to increase a vertical jump, yeah, increase the, the, the degrees of dorsiflexion by 10 degrees, but not passively, mm -hmm. right? Just because right. you have that 10 degrees, it doesn't mean that the body can use the 10 degrees. If anything, you open up passively 10 more degrees, you just, opened up 10 more degrees in which you can hurt yourself. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And, and that's what people forget. So now, now we're in a different topic We're now we're in the stretching topic. And I'm often quoted as saying, you know, you can't make the gains you want by doing 30 second stretching, but you can't just take what I said and then go to the literature and go, Oh, wait a minute. These studies say that this person increased range of motion by stretching for 30 seconds. Well, number one, they were dancers right? They were, their job is to control themselves in the external environment very specifically. So whatever worked for them isn't going to work for you, number one. Number two, 
what's the goal? Is the goal just the range of motion? Mm -hmm. Or do you want specific qualities in the tissues such that that range of motion is usable to the body, which requires different things, right? You, you, have, to, you have to gain ranges with, the, the, with more intent other than the range. So I'll say stretch for long periods of time, but that's because I'm not only going for the range, I'm also going for architectu architectural changes in the tissue. Yes. And architectural changes in the tissue from other research that people would not, this is the problem again. You go on, you go, I need to increase range of motion, enter in PubMed. It gives you a bunch of, of, of research papers on flexibility training, whereby the outcome measure was you used to be here and now you're here. That's not enough information because not only do I wanna get from here to here, but I want to insist that when I get from here to here, the quality of tissue is improving as the range is increasing. So the architectural components of the tissue are improving. What does that mean? Architectural components, meaning as I build length, I want to build quality in that length. So I want to rebuild afferent mechanoreceptors as I create the length so that my body can read the length and know what to do with it. I want to lay down collagen in the length such that when I go into the length, the body is able to absorb the forces that are occurring in that length. All of that is dependent on the architecture of the connective tissue, as well as the load bearing capacity of that connective tissue, which doesn't change in 30 second intervals. So again, you can't, the, the research conclusion, it's right if you have a, an outcome measure of, I wanna see more range. But if your outcome measure is more nuanced, I want more usable range that can accept and discharge forces in that range. Well, then you have to consider a whole bunch of other things. For example, when you're stretching, there's, you have to consider the phosphorylation of PK uh, one or a half, that enzyme that we talk about, that is the rate limiting enzyme for the production of new collagen. And we know that after a, a hard bout stretching bout, it takes a good six to eight hours before that, that enzyme becomes recharged enough to actually start producing more collagen, right? So that's a, a nuanced thing that people wouldn't know necessarily if they're just typing in, how do I get more range of motion? How do I become more flexible, right? There, there's, there's more to it. So it's like, you have to be careful. That's where you have to get into not just a flexibility study where they do a sit and reach and then six weeks later, they, they retest the sit and reach. You, you're, you're talking about you want to look at like what happens on a tissue specific basis that may not come up as a flexibility study, right? It may come up as something else. Absolutely. We know, um, you know, uh, there's art, other articles, but Vleeming always comes into, or is that Vleeming? I forget who's the, art, the author. They'll come back to me, but they, they, they do studies where, you know, you, you put tension into a Petri dish, so to speak of, of fibroblasts, right? and you look for their, their result, like what happens when you put the stretch in? And if you dye the, the cells for certain things, you can see what happens, right? You can dye the nucleus, you can dye the, the, um, the dendrite, you can see the, the, the activity of the cell. And what you see is that in most of these, these studies, when you put a passive load through tissue or through cells, the cells don't even recognize that, uh, that anything's happening until that load has been placed on them for a good few minutes, right? Some, cell, some studies might say three, some studies might say one, but it's not 30 seconds. 
at 30 seconds, those cells look like they're sleeping. They, they just, they do not produce anything. There's no increased nuclear activity. There's no increased dendritic outreaching in order to communicate with cells beside them. There's no, the cells remain flaccid and they remain largely unactive until that stretch st stimulus has been put in for a long period of time. Hmm. So you might be getting range of motion just because the body yields to the stretch, but that doesn't mean that from a cellular level that the information is doing anything, right? And, and that's the level that we, can that we can train at is at the cellular level. That's the level that our industry has brought us to in terms of going out into the research and looking for answers. But the problem, of course, is that most people are not at the cellular level. Most people are at the external outcome level. Uh, level. So I want more hamstring. I want more range. I want to push an object this many times out into the external environment, as opposed to translating that information inward and saying what's happening at the cells at, at that particular level. Like what, what is actually occurring? You know, another thing that we talk about a lot is increasing length, but also increasing fascicle length, right? When you take a muscle and you know this, of course, not all of the muscle fibers traverse from tendon to tendon. So it's not like you have the bicep muscle, tendon here, tendon here, and each muscle cell goes from tendon to tendon. No, each muscle cell is a variety of different lengths, right? It's called the fascicle length. And each single cell, because they're at different length, each cell has two tendons on either side, right? So when you're trying to increase length, you just don't want the muscle to be able to get longer by, by yielding the connect the neurology. You want to create length, but you want to build architecture into that length. Mm -hmm. And in order to build architecture, it's not going to happen passively because architecture costs currency. It costs energy to build stuff. And your body is not going to spend energy unless it's forced to spend energy because ultimately your body is just trying to relax. It's just trying to conserve energy. So you can say, I want length and you can sit in a split for four hours and then eventually, yeah, you get there because, you know, your, your muscle spindles are set too strong anyway, right? So you can bypass the muscle spindle and you can get some length, et cetera, et cetera. But over time, who gives a shit? You want the length, but you want to increase your fascicle length, which means you want to lay down sarcomeres, the, the basic unit of muscle cells that, that cause contraction. You want to lay those down in series. And we know from literature that people that have longer fascicle lengths are, are less prone to injury because more fascicles or more, not fascicles, more sarcomeres per fascicle means more contractile ability. Now that does one, two things. Number one, more contractile ability is defends you. So now you have the ability to execute force at length to defend you from injury, but it also increases the potential for speed of contraction because the more contractile units, the faster you can contract. So mm -hmm. ergo, again, it's an outcome measure problem. It's not that we're not trying to build, it's, it is not an artistic endeavor. Training, it's a good, training is not an artistic endeavor. In, order, in, in other words, you're not trying to make the external pattern prettier, or that's not the goal. The goal is to build the internal environment to be able to make whatever external pattern is necessary to overcome the specific movement variables that are being thrown at you at that time. Yes. Yeah. Um, no, I think that makes a lot of sense. Uh, you know, 
it's and this kind of getting back to what we almost kind of started with is that people get um, attached to a kind of a superficial picture mm. as an outcome. Like I can't touch my toes. Now I can touch my toes. Right. Or like um, I'm squatting here and now I'm squatting lower or I'm pushing 10 more pounds than I did last time, or I'm screening somebody's movements. And through a means of just artificial guidelines, I'm going to judge them. And then we'll make a, a system off of that. Right. Like you, our eyes only see the superficial stuff. You know, that's why we have something like the FRA functional range assessment, where we go in there and we just try to basically make, write down objective data, what range of motion each joint can do and each vector that it can do it in. Um, and I, I really think you hit the nail on the head about, we really have an outcome measure problem. It's a major because, outcome measure problem. Like you said, like if you're working with somebody and they need to get, not only do they need to get into like either you have the range or you don't have the range. Okay. You don't have the range of motion. You don't have the passive range of motion. Great. So we're going to, there's things we can do to increase your passive range of motion. Okay. You have passive range of motion, but now you don't have active range of motion, meaning that you don't have a lot of neurological control over that. Great. There's things we can do to get you more control over that. Great. Now you have neurological control over that range of motion, but you don't really have the low bearing capacity at the level that you need for whatever you're trying to do. Well, great. We can work into that. We can work into that as well. So it's not just like, can you get your shoulder overhead, right? Um, can your shoulder absorb the force that it needs to in that position? And, and that, if you start asking yourself those types of questions, then you can only get better answers than what you have now, because that's going to dictate your program. Yeah, because those are those are trainable qualities. You just you just healed the nail on yeah. the head. Is that those are trainable qualities? Like <clears throat> if I put you passively into a stretch and then that stretch increases, so let's just talk about the that particular new range of motion. How much experience do you have in that new range of motion? Right. The answer is none. You have exactly zero experience in the range of motion. So if I gave you an ath a client and I said, this person has exactly zero experience squatting, at what point, at, it, it, what, how could you possibly conclude that the best thing to do is to put that person under a loaded bar and squat them under load? So you have no experience squatting without load. So immediately let's start loading that squat. I always tell people, if you want to fuck your client up, like if you really want to injure your client, find things that they can't do unloaded and then load the shit out of them. <laughs> and you will for sure blow up that client, right? That's clearly not the goal. So if you, we all agree that if you passively increase the range of motion, then for sure you've not put load bearing experience into that range. That means that the load bearing experience in that range is zero. Mm -hmm. So if you have a load bearing experience of zero, then what would be an appropriate amount of weight to start training at? The answer is body weight or less, right? Or body weight minus something. For sure, it's not whatever look. You, you squat two plates. Then you go, I want more. So you go and you foam roll on your hamstrings for 40 minutes. You beat the shit out of your hamstrings. Now you go into a passive squat. You go, holy shit, I can get lower. And then people go right under the exact same load that they were squatting with. And they start squatting. And then at the basement of the squat, something blows and they go, oh, I didn't drink enough electrolytes or I didn't, you know, the water was off. It's like, no, you did something that you, we could, we could logically get through this. If I said, hey, we just beat your tissue up and now your nervous system said, all right, here's more range of motion. 
Do you have any experience in that range of motion? Well, no. Do you think it's a good idea to squat maximal effort into an area that you don't have any experience in? And then they go, well, no. They go, well, what are you doing? Right? Like, what are you doing then? And then because it doesn't fit the construct, people often get defensive and they start to, whoa, you know, you know, but let's just break this down. Like you, you should probably get used to loading the load the zone. You should probably get used to how to move into that zone. Another good example, when we do something, the passive range. Uh, holds. For those of you in the audience who don't know, <clears throat> when we break open a range of motion, one of the first things we do is we bring the person to that end range and we just get them to hold. Why would we do that? Because they have no experience. So what we're saying is, can you just hold your body weight out in space? Seems like a very good first thing to do, right? So we end up doing the drill and then some people inevitably they go, well, I can hold this easily. This is stupid. Why would I do this drill? And then I put them down and then I bring them to not what they can activate because of course, anybody can hold their arm in space. I bring them and I bring them into what they're not used to. Mm -hmm. Right. So now I bring them up here and I say, hold, and they go and their arm just slams back to the table. And I go, no, no, no. You said this was an easy drill. So let's try it again. And I put them there and I put them and then I give them a little bit more and I go, hold. And it slams right back to the table. And then I go, do you have control over that range? No. Do you think that you should be rebound catching balls of weights in that range? No. Why? Well, it doesn't seem like I can control the range. Exactly. Exactly. That's the problem, right? You, at the same time, someone will say, you know, strength is the way that you, in order to prevent injury, just get stronger. You've heard this too, like just strength conquers everything. You just got to get strong and, and well, okay. But if you're telling me that strength is what deflects injury or prevents injury, and I'm showing you an area that you've never strength trained in, you're just assuming that because you have strength between here and here, that you automatically have strength there and there, but you don't, right? Because you've never trained there. And then people go, oh, yeah, you're right. I haven't trained. Of course, yeah, it's not that I'm right. It's just that we have to have the conversation. We have to determine what about, what about flexibility is your goal. If it is legitimately just to take a still image, then for sure don't, don't listen to anything we're saying on this podcast. But if your goal is to utilize your ranges of motion to the best of their capacity, then there's specific training parameters that you should put on those ranges. And we shouldn't assume that research that demonstrates, oh, there's this range, and now there's this range, but who cares? It's like the old um, PNF trick, which by the way, PNF, people talk about PNF, but, but they don't understand what PNF is because PNF is like a, a, a training system. It's not just push and then relax, that's PIR, but who cares? But there's, I, I can take someone's range of motion and I can do a little isometric and then they relax and all of a sudden their range of motion increases. And they're like, oh my God, that's amazing. No, it's not. Who gives a shit? That's why I don't like before and after things on Instagram where people are like, this was my range. And then they do pails and rails. And then they go, now look at my range. Who cares? That's just a neurological trick. Anybody can do that. Show me active range now. And then in two months, show me that active range without warm up is increased. And then I'm going to click like and share it because that's impressive. Right. But the range itself is not, the range is just being governed by a neurological decision for the most part. 
So if you do an isometric contraction, nervous system goes out, you're still okay. Give them another 10, 15 degrees. That's not going to be there tomorrow. That's just a, it's just, it's just a party trick. It's a feat. It's a feat of, of length. It's a feat of, yeah, instead of a feat of strength. <laughs> I'm almost out of coffee. So yeah. where are we at? I'm well, um, did you have a few more topics we wanted to talk I mean, about? I mean, I have a little something. I mean, remember, uh, I thought because of your background, you, we, we've already kind of touched on this, but it, it is interesting when we talk about specificity. But a lot of times in, in something like striking, right, people will say, um, you know, well, skipping rope is good for footwork. Mm. Right? And uh, I think you could make an argument that, yeah, I mean, skipping rope will condition your calves and feet, your lower leg in a particular way based on how you train it, but that doesn't necessarily mean it is good for footwork, right? Or how, how would you, how, what would you, what are your thoughts on that? I was actually watching a fight not too long ago and the commentators, the UFC fight, the commentator said something, I can't remember who the commentator was. Anyway, they said something like, if you're gonna be a fighter, you have to, you have to put in your road work. So you have to run, right? Mm -hmm. And they made the, there's no way out of this. There's no, you must run. It's the only way to do it. Clearly that's not true. What running does and what skipping does is it challenges your tissue in a way that's similar to what you're going to be doing during the course of a five round fight, right? So you're going to be effectively um, activating slow twitch muscle fibers over a long period of time. But that's where the specificity of that drill ends because you can activate slow twitch fibers over a long period of time by doing almost anything, right? So technically you can spend more time shadow boxing and you can do shadow boxing for actual, as, as a drill for time. And you'll effectively be strengthening in the exact same way you were strengthening before, right? That's not to say that you shouldn't skip. Skipping's an excellent it's an excellent exercise. I have no problem with skipping. Um, however, of course, skipping to the extreme, like when you're using skipping and then trying to push skipping, you are technically doing the very similar motion over long periods of time, right? So you could, and, and the fact that the rope is going underneath you is just a, a thing to, to count reps with, right? Yes. Technically, you can just jump on the spot and then you can jump sideways for a certain amount of time. And then you can jump diagonally for a certain amount of time on one foot, and then you can do it on the other foot, right? Right. You can also intrinsically strengthen your, your foot muscles themselves. And, and that could be something as simple as stand on one leg and, and lean in order to challenge your ability to do it, but do it until you fail, right? Yeah. Just, I don't know if you've ever done that, but you, you've done oh, that. Yeah, you, you've put taken the, through that. That's horrible. Yeah, put the person's foot down. I would actually separate their toes as much as they can and then just get them to stand and get them to try to stay on the outskirts of that that foot right if that makes sense right. until you fail it's nasty man it yeah. is a, it is a disgusting way to torture oneself but it's also an incredible way to fail the slow twitch fibers of the feet which will uh, in essence force the body to give you more slow twitch fibers in your feet 100 right? I mean, skipping will do that. Skipping will do that. And I like, I mean, I think I'm, I agree with you. I think it's just that these, there's the, the blanket statements versus kind of breaking them down. Right. And then you're also like, Hey, like skipping rope, for example, is a lot of impact can be a lot of impact if you're doing it for long enough. 
Um, and is the person coming into practice the next day with tired feet that they can't? Yes. Oh, yes. Right? And the thing with the road work thing, if you even think, are they saying road work for conditioning? And if they're doing that, if that's what the commentator was saying, like you can accomplish that on a bike as well. You know, and you, like if you look at like, yeah, in other words, are you training the heart or yeah. are you training the specific stuff in the feet? Well, they're, well, here, look, they're claiming that it must be done with road work or skipping. Ergo, I don't, maybe they're not talking about the heart or I think the problem is, is that when you talk about endurance training, it gets very confused into training the system that outputs your endurance versus training the endurance of the tissues being utilized by the system. Mm. Does, yeah, that that, Does that make it better or worse? No, it makes it, I mean, that opened up another, I mean, if you have time, we can go into, I actually thought about that, about, you know, one of the things that I think, you know, we are coming out eventually with, with a conditioning course. And I, I think when you look at like what we've, talked about with functional range conditioning is like the extension of that in, into a conditioning idea is that you're trying to functionally train your metabolism mm -hmm. you know in a range that is relevant whether, whether it's heart rate or energy system it's that's relevant to whatever your sport demands are so like you were saying earlier like if you are if you're trying to train the heart what do you, what are specifically, what tissues are you trying to train? Are you trying to train a particular energy system? Um, or, and if that's the case, you can do that. Like, again, if I have a certain number of impact coins I can spend on my feet in MMA training in a week, do I want to spend most of that doing my sports specific MMA practice? And then I also know I need to spend time conditioning my heart. But if I also do a ton of jump roping and I also do my road work in, that's time, that's impact coins I'm spending on my feet that I'm not working on my striking or my wrestling, which is way more sport specific, but I can also get my conditioning without spending those other lower body coins, so to speak. The volume problem. The volume problem. It's the, it's the same problem. You're adding, this is what I'm saying. When people talk about the volume problem, they're not, they're not considering it to the extent that they should, because like you said, if you just spent the full, if you spent a, a good amount of your day sparring stand up, that's a lot of kilometers. Like you just put a lot of kilometers on your feet. <clears throat> now the question is, okay, so are you, when you go running, are you training the feet? It, if you are, I mean, you're probably only, you're, remember the thing we talked about stimulating versus retraining versus detraining? Yeah. You just did all of that middle volume stuff, sparring, right? Your feet have taken a beating. Now you're going to go running again, which is going to put you in the medium volume again. It's in the medium consistency, right? So you're not pushing the, the, the intrinsic foot muscles to give you more intrinsic foot muscles because that would require stimulating training, mm. right? So you're, you're adding volume. Now, are those volumes being put for the same purpose? Like in the road work, are you trying to train the, the system, the conditioning system? Or are you trying to train your feet? Because if you're trying to train the system, then it would make more sense to me, like you were saying, to do something else that allows you to train the heart at whatever level of intensity you want to train it at without adding insults, insults to the feet that you just insulted to begin with. Let the feet recover. Yes. Because I mean, and this is, this is the course over a training camp. And then all of a sudden somebody gets injured, you know, they get a leg kick weird and then 
they just move funny when they run for a while. And, and like, there's, so that's, I think where we talk about the volume problem, getting really specific in your inputs, you know, um, I have for general clients, you know, when we, when we start implementing aerobic conditioning, uh, the first foremost thing is like, is it enjoyable for them? Cause they're more likely to do it. And also, um, is it not an insult to their body? And so you have those two things clear Then I say, Hey, you know what, probably if you're going to be doing this for multiple hours a week, um, it's, and if you're going to do it at, in a, say a gym, use different modalities. I was just going to say, that's brilliant. Do a, lower, do a bike, do a treadmill. Um, because when you put that heart rate monitor on, it doesn't know the difference. Like, you know what I'm saying? It, it, yeah. You can, you can just, you can just, you, you can pat your head and then rub your, your belly for speed. And, and you put the heart rate monitor on and you're in the green zone. <laughs> and for your heart rate, like it's, it's in the green zone, do it faster. You go yellow, you go red uh, right. to the heart. It's not to the feet. That's a big difference. And then you, 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 you take a, like, a, I always go back to MMA athletes because I, I like to work with them the best, I guess. But yeah, you, you, if your foot has just gone through hell of sparring and drills and, you know, you know, athletic drills and jump up on your feet and jump to the left and jump up on your feet and jump to the right, we can get to those types of drills. They really upset me. But anyway, you've done all of that, right? Now you have a fatigued foot and now the next day you go for a road run and then you go, holy shit, my, my ITB is flaring up. Yeah. Right? And they go, well, that, that happens with running. Well, no, it doesn't happen with running. It happens with running on someone whose foot is exhausted. Yeah. Maybe that's why. Maybe, or, or maybe your hip is, maybe your glute min and mead were, you were in jujitsu for four hours yesterday. And, and, and you were doing guard work and your hips were up, you were, you were here and you were doing Toriendo passes or whatever. And now your hips are exhausted, right? So now you go for a run and every time you hit down with that foot, your glute min and mead have to prevent you from lateralizing that step to a certain extent in order to keep your, 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 your forces sagittal. Mm -hmm. But because you're so tired, you know, you start to, to run with, with more of a lateral kind of sway which increases the amount of stress on the fascia lata on the outside, on the tissue, on the, which pushes into the medial part the outside of your knee, which inflames the fat pad. I have ITB problems or you have low distribution problems. That's a great point. Yeah. I mean, you spend, you know, multiple whatever hours or whatever, kicking a bag mm -hmm. and mashing your anterior tip. And then the next day we're doing hill sprints mm -hmm. and then we go back and you're like, yeah, hey, you look a little flat. In your bag yeah. <laughs> yeah no kidding yeah right? shit. so that i mean that that's that's an important point i'm glad you brought that up and again this training the cardiovascular system versus training the the capacity to output cardiovascular demand from tissue uh two different things that's why when we've said this before too when you have a, a person who enters a you know whatever a crossfit gym or whatever uh, and, and they go, well, you don't need to do any distance running. You don't need to do any, any low level, long duration training. You we can get everything you need from high intensity, you know, uh, intervals and tabata work and, blah, 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 and that's all that matters. Well, again, yeah. From the outcome measure perspective, probably like if all you care about is performing that, those tasks and doing that sport, maybe that is enough to get you slightly better at that sport but you should probably find out what kind of quality their heart is like what condition their heart is in right if someone comes in and they're overweight and they're a smoker and they and they drink and their pastime is netflix 
you have to assume that that heart is deconditioned, right? So you would never take an ankle that's, that's deconditioned, beaten up, scar, riddled with scar tissue and just start saying, jump as fast as you can, jump as fast as you can. Just like taking someone whose heart is in piss poor condition and saying, let's do tabata work or interval work, or let's just work that heart as fast as you can. It, it makes equally, uh, it, it, it makes just as little sense to do that as well. Well, yeah, I mean, you're probably going to get the wrong kind of hypertrophy that you want for the heart when you do something but, like that. You meaning, know? you know, maybe you should explain that because that's something that people might not actually know either, either. But there are different responses at a tissue level from your heart as well as whatever it else is that you're training. 100%. Yeah. I mean, if you're, you know, depending on the intensity, if your heart rate is low enough, but, but elevated enough, you know, classically in an aerobic state, you're giving the, the, um, the left ventricle enough time to pull blood and actually stretch the heart. So you're getting what we call an eccentric hypertrophy of that. And um, that allows you to actually pull more blood in. So your stroke volume is higher, but you're also, your resting heart rate can get lower. You basically can pull more blood in it with less work. Mm -hmm. But if it's too high, you're going to be working, like if the heart rate is too elevated. So think of like a classic, like boot camp class where you're just, you know, blasting through, you know, a high heart rate, zone four, zone five, for those who are familiar with a, with the zone system, but just a super hard heart rate, um, you're probably going to be working on more of the contractile tissue, you know, mm -hmm. and that's where a lot of people spend their time anyway. Um, or they, it, you know, there's a whole rabbit hole, but if they're very inefficient at um, aerobic level activity, or they're basically their metabolism doesn't have a lot of experience in that range to, to utilize that, that system, they'll skip right into more of a lactate or sugar burning, right? And potentially you're going to, you're basically asking the heart to pull more from one side than the heart can deliver from the other side. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, and that's, and that's kind of everything we've kind of gone down to is like going back to the base foundation. You know, if you could do an FRA on the heart, you know, and if you can check, you know, where somebody is efficient, based off, you know, you can make measures for that. Like, you know, what is their aerobic capacity at? Um, it's just like you would do an FRA for their joints, right? And, and whoever comes into you. So I have somebody I'm training right now. He's, you know, semi-professional soccer athlete, big, strong, powerful player, but he fades towards the end of the game. And he also tends to have a resting heart rate of 75, 80, mm. you know, and he's, he's loves, he loves the FRC stuff that we do, but we started now implementing low aerobic work because he's still in the preseason because that's where his, that, you know, one of the things is like, when you manage somebody's minimums and you work on their weakness, that's where the biggest gains are going to be. So he's already an explosive player. He just fades. Right. And just on, even if you think outside of performance, you know, somebody with a poor aerobic system is probably more, they, they basically can't deal with stress as much, you know, the heart rate availability, heart rate variability is probably off. Right. So they're more likely that they can't recover between sets, between workouts, between games on a weekly to monthly basis. Um, so getting them to be at their best longer in the game is definitely going to be at the top of our priority um, when it comes to training them. And that's just because we've looked at the person, we've done an FRA in them, we've seen the rest of the, um, the factors in their training, in their life. And now we can be really specific in the, in the tissue that we want to train. In this case, it's the heart you make a good point is that you have to look for the lowest hanging fruit. If you're trying to make improvements in an, in a system, 
then if you if you look for the untrained areas of that system, that's the easiest way to make the biggest amount of gains, right? Right. Like even the, the heart, you said you can do an FRA on the heart. I, I mean, a large component of that is just the history. Like what types of training have you done, right? And I don't see anything in this that would indicate to me that you've done any long duration, low intensity training. Ergo, the assumption is, is that we have to look at that first to see if we can drive that up, right? Same with when you're, when you're talking, even if you're talking about a strength athlete, you give me any strength athlete and you go, this guy needs to get stronger. You know, he's the strongest guy already, right? How do I make him stronger? Well, the way you make him stronger is not by doing the same things that everyone else has done. The way I make him stronger is by saying, okay, well, what haven't you worked on? What qualities of strength have you been omitting? You know, and if you're looking at strength training, it's everything is usually at a muscle level. It's focused mm -hmm. on muscle I did this many sets. I, da, 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 da. I, I train this muscle on this day, this muscle on that day. So you go, oh, okay. So you're untrained in, in, with regards to your joint workspace. What do you mean? Well, have you ever put any dedicated training into the expansion of your articular or joint workspace? I don't know. I don't know what that means. Okay. So clearly you haven't done that. So the easiest way for me to increase your bench is probably to look at your shoulders that likely don't have a lot of good workspace. Or another way to say that is you've already trained the potential of that shoulder with your training. That's why you're so strong. You've squeezed the potential out of that shoulder as much as you could. But what you didn't do is try to build yourself more shoulder, right? You use the shoulder to squeeze the potential into the bench press, but you never thought to yourself, wait a minute, if I can squeeze more potential out of my shoulder, then that will translate into more potential of the bench press. And then you say, okay, so now we have a trainable quality, articular workspace that you've never trained. So guess what? As soon as we start training that, in the first four to six week block of training your articular workspace, I'm gonna make dramatic gains in your articular workspace. And yep. if you're doing it to the extent that we were talking about before, we're making this workspace gain, but we're also filling it in with neurology and strength. I just gave you more potential to squeeze more bench press. Yes. Of, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And you've also probably decreased the amount that the, that the current tissues that that person's working with is going to get eroded. Exactly. Because you pull volume. That's what exactly. If you find things that are untrained, well, here's another good thing to think, another idea. If you've done the same training for a long period of time, you accommodate to the training. So people in the audience would notice if you're doing dumbbell bench press at 55 pounds, the first time you do it, the next day, you're sore as shit. The next time you do it, you're half as sore as you were. The next time you do it, you don't feel anything anymore, right? Like you're done, right? You've accommodated um, to that load. Now, if I give you more bench, like to get any, to make that a stimulus again, it's going to, it's going to volume, more volume, more volume. Mm. <laughs> but if I take that person, I go, okay, well, you've trained that clearly. What haven't you trained? Right. I only require one set, likely one rep, one set, one rep in the thing you didn't train. And the next day you go, holy shit, my deep hip cap, it's, it's really sore. Yeah, I know you're untrained. So there, when you take a, a, an exercise list and everything is dedicated to the chest, 
Well, yeah, in order, and then people go, well, I, I, I am not feeling it anymore. It's not building anymore. Add more stuff, add more stuff. And then the list gets this long. And then they go, man, I, I was, and you see them in a month, you go, I was, I was doing good. And then I blew my shoulder. It must've been the electrolytes. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't get enough sleep. I, I didn't, I didn't take vitamin D. Well, no, it's that you just, you just went past your ability to, to adapt. Right. But exactly. if you would have said, you know what, erase all of these exercises and fill them in with things you haven't trained that will ultimately lead to more bench press. One set, one set, one set done. All of those things are trained and all of those things are trained to the extent that they're going to change because those are all untrained things. And if you take any athlete, what things are untrained? Um, connective tissue architecture, never trained. How do I know that? Because people listen to podcasts that tell him, tell them that flexibility can be acquired in 30 degree stretching intervals, i.e. never trained connective tissue architecture. Well, yeah, but I went to my massage therapist. Go to a massage therapist, you realize that the way that they're manipulating the tissue is not a way that is going to lead to, to, to adaptation uh, in that tissue. It's just, you know, for some reason with soft tissue, it got weird. It, it's like we took, we took the tenderizing of meat and we just assumed that if we tenderize the person, that it's going to have the same result, right? So in other words, you tenderize meat to literally break it down. So when it, when it cooks, it just falls apart into mush. And we go, I have an idea. Let's do that for my quad. It, and literally, you ever see these people yeah, that yeah, getting sticks yeah, yeah. and they're banging? There's, there, I saw the guns, one. the shooting guns. Yeah, just start punching the shit out of your quad as much as you can. Because architecture depends on, on directionality of force. And the directionality of force has to be inputted over a period of time in order to make architectural changes in tissue. You would put length loading into it in order for it to build more, right? So architecture is something that's not trained. Connective tissue load bearing capacity. Mm -hmm. People would say, well, what do you mean? I, I, I work out. Yeah, but you work out, you continuously move. You're doing reps as you're working out. You're moving the tissue. So you're really training the ability for the red stuff to exert speed into the white stuff because that's what muscles are. Muscles are the ability to, um, to how do we say this? It's, it's a speed gauge. How quickly do you want to transfer load into the connective tissue, which will ultimately pull onto the bone, which is also connective tissue, which will ultimately create the motion, right? So right. you can work on the speed at which you do it but the quality of the stuff you're pulling into remains largely untrained. Well, how is that possible? It's possible because you can't train them both in the same way. They're two different tissues. Yeah. Muscle is on the speed spectrum. Connective tissue is on the load uh, bearing capacity spectrum. One is using the variable of speed. The other one, you have to almost omit the variable of speed in order to funnel the work into the connective tissue. Right. Again, we can get into that and we've done it before, but it's the, I think it's the specificity of your goals, um, which is the, which is the main problem. Well, we, this, you know, this is what, when we were at the, um, the NBA com combine mm. once ago, we, we talked about the volume, right. And, and the idea that um, you're trying to manage, you're, you're managing volume only in the forms of, of whatever it is running and jumping but you're not able, you can't really quantify 
technically, but you have to at least conceptualize that load load goes like you you're loading the same tissue, you're eroding the same tissue. So it's not just like, okay, so like what they're saying is that we should do things slower. So now we're just going to do eccentrics on the same tissue that's already being overloaded. It's no, I mean, that can help, but what you're looking to do is actually expand more tissue to do something like eccentrics or slow or whatever type of training you're, you're doing, you're looking to expand that tissue so you can put more of those inputs in. So you're trying to pull more tissue into the fold. Yes. Yes. The answer isn't, well, let me just work my overloaded tissue in a different way. The answer is let me access more tissue so that um, I can, I'm not just eroding the same tissues. Untrained tissue. Untrained tissue. Let's access untrained tissue because that's where the potential lies. Because you can only squeeze so much potential out of a particular tissue, or if you drill it down to a particular cell, there is an upper limit of adaptability for that cell, right? Has to be because or else you would just never, like you never have a limit on your squat. You continuously go up, but that, that's not what happens, right? It, anyway, yeah. I think we should, uh, we should draw, draw the line there. Uh, again, my coffee is gone, uh, which means that, that we should be moving. The podcast is done. The podcast is done. So anything else to, to note, my friend, before we, we say goodbye? No, that was pretty good for um, off the cuff, two hours. Yeah, you know what? We had a list. I had a list on my phone, and I didn't look at it once. So uh, anyway, guys, I hope you, you all enjoy that. Um, yeah, you'll hear from Josh again. Uh, we'll, we'll do another one soon, my friend. All right, sounds good. Very good. We'll talk to you soon. Ciao. Peace.